Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, reporter Diane Ohm brings us a story about student loans, the debt that comes with them, and the people struggling to pay them back. Afterward, we share a condensed version of an interview several Nevada Independent staff members conducted in March with Republican Joe Lombardo, who is running for governor. It's the first of several candidate interviews we'll be sharing here in the weeks leading up to the primary election. At the end of the show, reporter Daniel Rothberg joins me to talk about water. Student debt has been a hot topic in the news recently as Democrats push to ease the burden of it, which has been a policy priority for President Joe Biden. In April, the Biden administration extended a pandemic-related pause on federal student loan repayment through August 31st, which was a welcome relief for many Nevadans with student loan debt. In Nevada, the total amount of student debt rose more than 150% to over $11 billion between 2010 and 2020. Reporter Diane Ohm took a closer look at the issue and spoke with several Nevada residents grappling with student loan debt. So I know you recently graduated in a master's program. Is that something that kind of drew you to this topic that made you interested in it? So personally, I don't have any student loans. I was lucky enough to not have to take out any student loans to fund my education. But it was definitely uh, interesting to talk to a wide range of people who have taken out student loans because they have such diverse backgrounds and they're also coming up with different ways to tackle the student loan issue moving forward after their higher education. There's certainly a crisis that affects a lot of people. In Nevada, there are roughly 330,000 residents who have student loan debt. When you take the total amount of student debt in the state and divide it by those 330,000 residents, it comes out to about $34,000 a person. To put that into perspective, according to the U.S. Census, in 2019, the per capita income in Nevada was $33,545. As Diane mentioned in her story, there's a new twist in the student loan saga, and that is increasing interest rates. How much has that increased in the last couple of years? So the fixed interest rate for the federal loans have increased every year, and it was previously 3.73%, and this year it's supposed to increase to up to 5.1%, which is a significant increase. So it's going to affect a lot of people who has to pay their student debt forward if they have taken out student loans this year. How frequent is it for people in Nevada to default on, on their loans? So I mentioned that about 330,000 Nevadans have student loan debts. And Nevada, um, as a state, has one of the highest student loan default rates at 18%. And one interesting stat that you, uh, you had in your story was about student loans and, and when it comes to rural Nevadans, which also it seems to impact them a little bit more, right? Yeah, so the disparity is pretty great as to urban and rural communities. So in rural communities with one in five borrowers over the age of 60 are considered delinquent. So they have not been paying their student loans in time. When someone is delinquent on their loans, it can have a significant impact on their financial situation, affecting their credit score and making it harder for them to get loans in the future, making it hard to plan for retirement or to get a mortgage on a house. Here's Armando Garcia, who couldn't afford to go to college and had to drop out, leaving him saddled with loans despite not receiving a degree. Diane spoke with him over the phone. Even if you stop going to school, you still have to keep paying towards the full amount. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Uh, at least a minimum of fifty dollars every month. So, do you have any idea as to how many years you'd have to work to pay it off completely? I honestly don't know because I know when you pay the minimum amount, you're not really paying towards loan; you're mainly paying towards the interest. I was only really able to afford the minimum payments ever since I took out the loan. So it feels like I'm going to be paying it off for forever. Back in 2018, 2019, I just paid it like three days late, but that caused my credit score to go down by like 63 points. Yeah, it really f- me over. During the pandemic, there has been a pause on student loan repayment. So, what has that meant for for people with student loans that you talk to? This is the seventh extension that the government has placed, and although it doesn't mean that you can automatically not pay for student loans, but it means that the interest doesn't accrue, and it gives people more time to save up and pay in lump sums, which I know a lot of people have done. Here's Amy Koo, political director for One APIA Nevada, talking about how the freeze helped her pay off her loan. I was able to save up enough money to pay off some of my student loan debt uh, earlier this month, but I did it more in like a lump sum, and I was only able to do that and pay off a significant amount because I was able to save up throughout a couple of months and not have to pay those every month. Mm-hmm. Especially considering that the interest has been frozen since March last year. Also, here's Andrew Goldsmith. A law clerk in Las Vegas who accrued significant debt going to law school, but with the pause, was able to save up enough money to put a down payment on a home. I think I probably at this time would have only probably been able to afford an apartment, but even the cost of rent in an apartment is about what I'm paying on my mortgage right now. So, like the hardest part with the mortgage was the big down payment you need. After that, the price is comparable to the price of rent. You know that you have to pay every month. Without the pause. I'm doubtful that I would have had all the money available to、uh, make the down payment on the house, which meant I probably would be living in an apartment right now. There are also two kinds of student loans. Federal loans are the most common, and that's what we've been talking about. But private loans also exist. So the federal loans have a fixed interest rate. And it's、um, available for everyone if you file through FAFSA or other programs. And if you have taken out a private loan,、um, unfortunately, the moratorium does not apply for private loans. So that that is the basic difference as to if you've taken out federal loans, then you would have benefited from the pause. But otherwise, you would still have that accruing interest. I've talked to a couple of people who have taken out private loans. Here's law clerk Andrew Goldsmith again. Five thousand of that sixty thousand was、uh, the private loan that I paid off, even though I didn't have to, even though that it was in effect. I didn't know how the interest rate would work on it because obviously private loans are going to be not as good of a deal as a government loan. But most of them have taken out federal loans first, and then they've taken out private loans as basically like a subsidy. Here's you and our senior Chris Lemke, who spoke with Diane as well. I. Come from a single-parent household, and she couldn't afford to support me through school. It's too expensive for her. I believe, according to like the FAFSA form, her expected contribution is like thirteen thousand dollars a year towards my education, which is just unfeasible. So I've had to take out private loans to pay for when I was living on campus, and then the maximum amount of federal loans for the rest of my tuition. 
They have complained that private loan companies can be predatory because they may not be providing information about how to pay back or they, have, they may not keep records straight. So they have complained that it's actually more expensive to pay back their loans to private companies and it's more difficult for them to pay it back once they have graduated from schools. Another thing that we've heard is not only that this pause, this moratorium, but also President Biden has talked about canceling student debt. There have been different discussions around that. Explain to me where we're at with that at the moment. So there have been talks about canceling student debt as a whole, but there's also been talks that he's going to cancel debt for up to $10,000 per student borrower. And a lot of people that I've talked to have said that sounds more reasonable. And canceling student debt as a whole would raise a lot of issues because some people have already paid back their student loans and they may not feel that it's fair. So uh, canceling debt up to $10,000 may be more reasonable. A lot of experts have talked about canceling student debt being a band-aid to a much larger problem of the overall cost of higher education. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index for College Tuition and Fees, college tuition has risen by 1,200% since 1980, while the inflation rate in America has risen by 236%. In 2008, inflation fell by 1.5%, but college tuition and fees went up by more than 6%. What, what did you feel like was the big takeaway for you from reporting on this story? What was one thing that surprised you that you weren't expecting to learn from, from doing this story? One of the conversations that I had with one of my interviewers was probably the most striking for me. I did not realize that the student loan debt would be such a big responsibility to take on at such a young age. When you're 18, you don't really know what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, but it is a responsibility that you're signing up for. I feel like they're very predatory in the way that like, I was able to sign for a loan all by myself when I was 18. Still a teenager. I'm 23 now, so that was five years ago, and I probably wouldn't have signed up for a loan if I had, you know, the knowledge that I have now. You can read Diane's full piece on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. It was also Diane's last week here with us, so we'd like to thank her for all of her wonderful reporting she's done for us. This segment was produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, and reported by Diane Ohm. All right. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been conducting some editorial board interviews with candidates running for different offices here in Nevada. That's right. This week, we're going to bring you one of those interviews that we did in March with Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo. Uh, He's running to be the Republican nominee for governor, and he faces several primary opponents. And if he wins, he'll most likely face off against incumbent governor Steve Sisolak. Yeah, and this this interview has also been trimmed down for length, um, just so you know. But, but the full interview can be found um, on our YouTube channel. It's about an hour long, so go there to find that. In this interview, you're going to hear editor Elizabeth Thompson, assistant editor Riley Snyder, and reporter Tabitha Mueller asking questions. Uh, things are going to start with Elizabeth, who asks about Lombardo's criticism of the state opening up too slowly after COVID. Can you give a couple examples of the types of businesses that, in your mind, were essential and probably should have been 
kept open as opposed to the more of a blanket approach? You know, we didn't know what we didn't know uh, in the early throes of the COVID. And is it questionable for him shutting down the casinos and, and the entirety of the economy, you know, outside of your staples like your groceries or your, your needed necessities or your health care? But soon after, we knew there was a flaw in that decision. So I don't blame him. I don't, I, I don't think it was a bad decision to shut down the casinos. Those are people coming into the state. All right. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know what situation they put themselves in on a daily basis. We don't know what the infection rate was going to occur. So the science was a little vague in that aspect. So I don't blame that. But soon we knew there was a decision point associated with the COVID response on overwhelming of the medical services and whether we could accommodate illness associated with the COVID. And we soon knew, based on science and data, that was not the case. My opinion, he took way too long to make the decision to lighten up on the economy, open up the economy, the slow death associated with shutting down the economy. I wanted to ask, do you see or have any reason to believe that Joe Biden is not the duly elected president of the United States? No. I didn't vote for him, but I don't see any reason to say that he's not the duly elected uh, president of the United States. Now, with that being said, Riley, it's important for people to understand my position on this. I think the election system has the ability to have fraud associated with it. The evidence was not brought forward that we could prosecute on it. And, you know, 34 years in law enforcement, that's what I base a lot of my decision on, is actual evidence and not anecdotal information that is not to be proven. What I would do and what, what I'm concerned with is the sanctity of the system and the ability for people to feel confident that their vote matters and, and there's not going to be a fraud associated with it. And it's firm and fair and, and complete in an election process. So in, in my platform includes the implementation of voter ID, uh, the repeal of the universal mail and the ballot harvesting associated with it. So I wanted to turn to a slightly different topic, and that's housing. We've seen rent prices increasing across the country and here in Nevada One question I had is if the legislature sends you a bill authorizing local governments to enact rent control policies, would you sign that and support it? No, I'm I'm saying no now uh, because I'm not well informed enough on that. I think uh, we need to bring some industry experts associated with that and look at different states that have it, you know, to, you know, example being New York or California in that space. Has there been a benefit associated with rent control? You know, and just in the short time that that's been brought up and people are talking about it as a possible solution for affordable housing, I've heard both sides of the, the equation on that. You know, some people support it, some don't. And I don't know enough about it to say that if a bill hits my desk, I'm going to sign it. What's your position on the death penalty? I support the death penalty as long as there's due process. You were asked a question about defunding the police. And you mentioned you'd be supportive of defunding the police if that meant supporting social workers, that type of profession. I don't support defunding the police when we're talking about putting cops on the street. Do not support it. Cops make a difference. They're influential in everything associated with the economy and the quality of life in any society. A significant amount of our work in law enforcement is dedicated to people that are in distress. Homelessness, social issue, hunger, mental health, drug abuse, and those are volatile populations. And over the years, cops have asked to expand their resumes to deal with everything under the sun. And quite often, the answer to every social ill is dial 911. 
right? So if you don't have an answer, dial 911, have the cops show up and expect them to solve the problem. We are duly bound not to walk away, okay? So it's important for people to realize that. But we are putting the cops, my cops, the state's cops, in position of liability and, and unsuccess because of lack of resources. It'd be very simple to encounter a, a person in distress. You have a limited amount of uh, training to negotiate with that individual, and then hopefully you can provide them some service on the back end to solve the problem. That is not the case, and we are not the experts of all things. And fortunately, there are people out there that are better situated in negotiating with individuals in distress and identifying resources on the back end for them to get solutions to the problem. If I can allocate some budgetary money within my existing budget that would help my cops respond to calls for service and, and be met with success versus failure, I would support that. But unfortunately, there hasn't been a program brought forward. Do you think Nevada schools at this moment are underfunded? I don't know. And I, I've said it publicly that we need to do a complete audit of the system. Day one, you know, when elected governor, that we go into the system and determine whether the funds are being allocated appropriately and where they need to be allocated. One of the unfortunate pieces on COVID, and we were talking about the response to COVID, the state is different everywhere you go in the state. I believe the response to COVID, the answers couldn't be all one answer. Every county is different. Every nuance is different. Every demographic is different in every county. And I believe the county should have the autonomy to make their decisions on the COVID response and the prophylactics with that. So now we move into education. Every county is different. And, you know, we quite often talk about Southern Nevada and the Clark County School District and its voluminous size and its cumbersomeness and whether it's can be managed appropriately with the, the current organization, the way it's set up. So to answer your question, an audit and an evaluation of the existing system needs to be done, a complete comprehensive one, prior to making a decision whether it's funded appropriately. I, I, I always think teachers are underpaid. Let me, let me couch it that way. But I want to make sure that their pay scale is appropriate for the economy of Nevada. You know, I wish I could pay them a fortune, right? I think they have a... a a very difficult, especially in today's age, a very difficult job. If you decided that in some part of the education budget, more money was needed, would you be open to a property tax hike? No, I wouldn't be open to a property tax hike, but I would be open to a reevaluation on the process. And what I mean on this a point of sale, of resale, an adjustment of the valuation of the property from point of sale versus the point of enactment, you know, on its original build date. And in, in my opinion, that's not necessarily a new tax. That's a, a reevaluation of an existing tax. In your mind, does no new taxes mean you're going to sign the Americans for Tax Reform tax pledge, not approve any fee increase? Like I'm not interested in pledges. I'm not interested in that. And I just... I just think that paints you in a corner that there's no reason to be in that corner. Yeah. So it's fair to say that you're open to modifying tax rates, like you mentioned. You know, I said it publicly. I said tax reform, you know, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is can we do a, a better way of doing business? No positive, no increase in revenue. Reallocation. Do you think Nevada should be welcoming refugees, whether from Afghanistan or Ukraine or wherever? 
Yes, if properly vetted. Me being in law enforcement and prior military, I know that the record keeping and the systems associated with foreign countries is not as robust as the United States. And it's very important that we ensure that bad actors are not landing on our soil. I don't have a lot of confidence in the current situation of Afghani refugees. And, and the vetting of those individuals, because we've already experienced, even in the state of Nevada, some of those individuals coming into state and, and committed crimes. So it's important for the federal government to do their due diligence before it's thrust upon local states. Hey, Joey, how much do you know about water in Nevada? Uh, I know that we do not have enough water here in the state. Nope, certainly not. And, well, Daniel Rothberg has been reporting on water in and around the state, and he has some information that we should all know. Well, I am here with our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg. And, uh, Daniel, you have a newsletter. It comes out every Thursday. It's called Indie Environment. It is a wonderful newsletter. And this week you wrote uh, five things to know about water in Nevada, but, you know, just in general, these questions that you're getting about water all the time. Uh, You do a lot of reporting on water. It's always a big topic. Lake Mead is super low. It's super scary right now. So it's been in the news. But I want to ask you, what is the most common question you get when, when talking about water? Thanks, Joey, for having me on. That's a tough one. I get a lot of questions about water. I think the obvious question that everyone asks is, do we have enough or are we going to run out? One of the points that I made in the newsletter was that Nevada is the driest state in the nation in the driest region in the nation. And because of that, we have prepared to live with very little water. So in some ways, Nevada is prepared for the the drought that we're currently in. And right now we're mostly talking about drinking water, but to continue providing drinking water for municipal industrial use. The other point that I made in the newsletter, though, the little caveat to that question is that Nevada is a big state by land and there's a lot of different watersheds across the state and there's a lot of different basins across the state and each watershed is unique it's governed in different ways. It has different power dynamics and different water budgets and portfolios of of uses. So that's just really important to keep in mind. It's really difficult to talk about. And I think in some ways inappropriate to talk about water without getting into sort of the local issues. How many watersheds do we we have in the state of Nevada? There, There are a lot of different groundwater basins. The big ones are Las Vegas is in the Colorado River watershed, the Walker River watershed, which uh, the Walker River originates in in California. It's part of the Truckee River watershed. The Truckee River is where the Reno Sparks area gets a lot of water. The Humboldt River watershed runs through much of central Nevada. You said one thing that I hear a lot about when people talk about water, which is uh, California, the the boogeyman, I feel like sometimes here in Nevada. Is California stealing our water? (laughs) Nevada is the dry state in the nation, and a lot of our water actually comes from snowpack and, and snowmelt 
from other places, including California. The Truckee River, that's water that's coming to us from the Lake Tahoe area and the mountains around Lake Tahoe and the California side as well as the Nevada side. The same thing is true with the Walker River. Bridgeport in California is part of the Walker River watershed. And the Colorado River, in the case of Colorado River, a lot of our water is coming from the Rockies. That said, I think a lot of people talk about California, especially in the context of the Colorado River. So I'm going to just be specific and and talk about that. And California does have the largest share of the Colorado River. They're not stealing our water. That's just a foundation enshrined in multiple legal documents over decades and decades. And because California developed its water, particularly the Imperial Valley and some of the agricultural districts, they have what are known as senior or priority water rights, essentially water rights that are more protected than water rights that were developed later in time. And that's just the way that Western water law operates. It's actually a lot more complicated than saying, oh, California is using all of our water because they have a legal right to to the water that they have on the Colorado River. And that's just something that has been enshrined in, in our history and our laws over time. I think there's sometimes a misperception that the majority of this water is going to big cities. A lot of this water is going to agriculture and agriculture that we all interact with, even if we don't live in the area where it's grown. We we buy winter lettuce. It's, it's likely that that winter lettuce was grown in a place like the Imperial Valley or the Coachella Valley. So being the driest state in the nation, my day-to-day usage of water, I, I've been drinking water throughout this conversation. Uh, I take a shower every day. I, I water my plants. Explain to me what my water usage means living in the driest state. Yeah. The the way that municipal water providers look at this question is they'll basically, there's there's probably a little bit more complicated math, but they'll basically look at their water use and then they'll break that down into per capita water use per day. And the good news is that in many cities across the West, and I'd imagine in other places of the country as well, Water use has gone down because newer homes tend to have more efficient appliances and for all sorts of reasons. But I do think that urban water managers are looking more and more to conservation and on encouraging customers to decrease their daily water consumption. Now, that doesn't just include what you drink, taking a shower, water you use to cook. It also includes things like outdoor water usage, which is a big, big driver of consumptive water use, right? Like outdoor irrigation, that water is consumed. It can't be recycled. It is lost to the system. So a lot of the emphasis of these conservation programs are on reducing outdoor irrigation or making outdoor irrigation more efficient or encouraging customers to plant more drought resilient plants. And going back to California, we're seeing that right now with with mandates in Southern California in terms of watering restrictions and and things like that because of the crunch on the Colorado River and, and from other water supplies in California. That messaging has been prominent in Vegas for decades. And I think more and more cities are turning to conservation and decreasing that per capita daily water use, particularly with a focus on outdoor irrigation. Not only is it conserving water, but there is kind of a a supply side part of this too, because if you're conserving water, that potentially frees up new water and is 
often a lot cheaper than and, and more environmentally sustainable than building a big pipeline or a big infrastructure project like that. And it can be done more quickly. So we talked about conservation, but there's also this argument of augmentation, right? Of, of creating more water in our supply instead of using less, let's have more. Obviously, like you said, it's a finite resource. It's, it's complicated. Things like desalination in California are one thing that you talked about in your newsletter or, or, or piping in water from the Mississippi River. How much more practical is that augmentation than, say, this conservation effort? I think that this is something that water managers in the West have always had in the back back of their mind. Mm -hmm. What I can say is that what you might think about is augmentation. I get a lot of emails about piping water from the Mississippi River or the Columbia River or the Missouri River to help augment the Colorado River supply. I've heard about bringing an iceberg and putting in Lake Mead. Um, <laughs> I think that augmentation is something that people are really seriously looking at. What I hear most often is, is about desalinization and then also water recycling. Because if indoor use can be recycled over and over again, that can reduce a huge amount of customer demand. I think that is that is something that different water agencies, you're already seeing different water agencies, including the Southern Nevada Water Authority, invest in and invest in other places to help free up some of the Colorado River supply. Whatever project you believe is the best path forward, they're expensive and then they take a long time to build. So right now, I think a lot of the focus is on conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Diane Ohm, Joe Lombardo, Elizabeth Thompson, Riley Snyder, Tabitha Mueller, and Daniel Rothberg for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rindels, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. This is also Diane's last week with us as an intern, and she's done a fantastic job. She'll be moving on to a new opportunity in Indianapolis, so keep an eye out for her work there. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>